This is a work of fact. That's right, fact. Hello, hello, welcome to Ragbag's Fourth Wall. My name's Frank Burton, the real one. As Uncle Claude pointed out at the start of this thing, this is a work of fact. Uh, The rest of this series has been a work of fiction, just in case you haven't figured that out for yourself yet. Uh, (laughs) It does uh, feature a character named Frank Burton, who is the narrator, who has my voice, does he not? But he is a fictional character. You are currently listening to the real Frank Burton. I'm the writer and performer of this fictional work. (laughs) Have I laboured this point enough now that it's a fictional work? Yes. Okay. Yes, I have. I feel the need to do that because sometimes people do get confused and they think that fictional Frank and me are the same person. Uh, I just need to keep on pointing out that we're not. That's all. So we got that announcement out of the way. Um, the other announcement, I guess I should do a spoiler alert for this because although I'm assuming that you have listened to the whole series now, And you have heard the whole of Endless Impossible, or indeed you've read the book, perhaps, and now you're listening to this because you want to have some further insight into the writing process behind the book. Great. Nice to meet you. Hello. Just to say, if you haven't read it or you haven't listened to it, I am going to be spoiling it. There's there's a very nice reveal at the end of the book, which I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be completely spoiling the heck out of this thing. So (laughs) listener discretion is advised. Is that what they say? I think that's what they say on proper podcasts. They say that, don't they? Now, the thing that immediately preceded the fourth ragbag book, which is the thing we're talking about today, Endless Impossible. Well, strictly speaking, it was Brollywood, which was the third ragbag book. But there's a thing that came in between the two of them, which I released. It's a sitcom, would you believe? Frank and Claude are following you is the name of it. It features myself and Uncle Claude traveling around in the van solving mysteries (laughs) so if that sounds up your street maybe you've heard it maybe you haven't I'm bringing this up partly because I was going to do a ragbags fourth wall episode about Frank and Claude following you and my process for putting these fourth wall things together is that there's no script I just sit down turn the microphone on and talk about the process of creating the thing and it's been easy enough to do for the for the ragbag books. For some reason, I just couldn't get a handle on Frank and Claude following you. I think because I tried to record that episode like immediately after making the series. So it was very, very fresh in my mind. And I, I was too close to it, perhaps, to fully do it justice. You have to kind of take a step back from the thing. I'm OK doing this now because I wrote Endless Impossible. I finished writing it. Oh, uh, at least six months ago now. So I've been able to take at least a couple of steps back from it. So I can examine the whole thing from a critical perspective and also from the perspective of the person who created the thing with a little bit of hindsight. So that's quite handy to do, I think. Or maybe I will do a fourth wall thing for Frank and Claude following you at some point um, when I've got the time and also the inclination to do it. I'm very, very happy with Frank and Claude following you. I think that's also the thing. I, I think I'm, re- I'm really just in love with that series. I know that sounds arrogant because I'm the guy who 
created it. I'm really, really pleased with how that came out. And at some point, I would love to just delve into it a little bit more and figure out what it is that worked and why I like it so much. Perhaps I would like to make a second series of that, but I'd like to leave that for a while as well. Work on other things. I'm also taking a break from the Ragbag series as well and working on other things because I think because I've been doing this for since 2019, so I've been doing it, you know, a good four years and counting and I haven't really had a break from it. The resulting work will be better if I take like a year off and do some other things and then come back to it from a fresh perspective, perhaps having learned some more things from the other things that I've been writing, you know, and bring in the influence of them rather than keep on working on this one series. If that's all I'm doing, I'm going to get bored of it eventually. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose that momentum, really. And also the fifth ragbag book is going to be quite dark and... <laughs> I think I just need to ha uh, take some time to kind of think about it before I get right into it. Think about the story, think about what is going to go in there before I put pen to paper, as they used to say when people used to put pen to paper. I do everything digitally now, so it's, it's been a long time since I wrote anything with, with a pen and a paper. I think I've forgotten how to do it. So where do we begin with... <laughs> I keep wanting to call it Everything Impossible. I keep mispronouncing the name of my own book and my own series. Why do I keep calling it Everything Impossible? It's not Everything Impossible, it's Endless Impossible. I mean, Endless Impossible doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> it's just two words together, isn't it? So Everything Impossible, I might as well just call it that. So if that slips out, I apologise. But Endless Impossible, where do we start with that? Well, we ought to start with the first chapter because that's where it all came from. Now, this was a short story. Uh, the opening chapter was a short story that originated on the Ragbag podcast. I thought it would be quite funny to play around with this idea of... You see these scenes on TV and film quite a lot where someone's been arrested for murder or whatever it is and there's a bunch of journalists outside the family home, meanwhile, while they're being interrogated. And I thought it'd be interesting to write something from like a child's point of view under those circumstances. The child having his father arrested in a police station and a bunch of people are outside asking questions. And obviously what happens is this is fictional Frank Burton who we're talking about here. So what he does is he <laughs> goes outside, stands on top of the candy floss machine and just breaks into this whole monologue that he's written about different types of drinks that you see on, on the TV. <laughs> and I thought that was just like a funny story. And then I rounded the story off by saying, oh yeah, my dad didn't do the murder. They caught the guy who did it and they let him go. That was just like a funny way of finishing it. But then added this extra dimension to this uh, short story where one of the journalists who'd seen Frank deliver this monologue wrote him a letter saying how much he enjoyed it. And I rounded off the story then by saying, well, this was the start of a pen friendship between myself and this journalist, and I'll tell you all about it one day. And then <laughs> several years later, that's exactly what we've done, isn't it? We have taken this character of Dennis Gleeson and made a whole book out of what starts off as a pen friendship between nine-year-old Frank and the adult Dennis Gleeson. And I, I'm quite pleased with myself that I, I had this in mind for 
quite early on that I was going to at some point do something with this Dennis Gleeson character. So I mentioned him in book two, in Getting Away With It. I mentioned him a couple of times that Frank had told Jenna about Dennis Gleeson and the influence that Dennis Gleeson had had on Frank's life, but he didn't really say very much about it. And he said, oh, he's disappeared now, but that's a long story. I won't go into it. As a matter of fact, in the original short story, which you can still listen to, it is Ragbag Presents Season 1, Episode 26, that went out in 2019. The episode is called Have You Ever Noticed? And I mention as a kind of throwaway line, when I introduce Dennis Gleeson's character, I say, yeah, Dennis Gleeson, he's dead now, but that's another story, or something like that. And as we know from getting to the end of Endless Impossible, Dennis Gleeson is not actually dead. But because I've described him as being dead, now I've already described him as being dead, so how do I get around this one then? Well, I quite like the trick that I pulled here because Dennis Gleeson, as it turns out, has moved away and changed his name and he describes Dennis Gleeson as being dead. He says, Dennis Gleeson is dead, but seeing as it's you, Frank, I'll sign off Dennis. Strictly speaking, Frank was telling the truth there that Dennis Gleeson is dead and we're all square on that front, Okay, We're all square. But yeah, I had to do something about that because I'd already described him as being dead, but I didn't want to just kill him just because I decided that when I first invented the character, that he's going to die at some point. You know, we're all going to die at some point. <laughs> what am I trying to say? I'm just trying to say th- this is how I kind of fit this story in with this brand new story that I invented about, you know, Eileen Angel and all of these people. You know, th- these were kind of new characters who were being brought in to the Ragbag series. So we will get to that. We'll get to that. I think the original idea was that a lot of it was, a lot of Endless Impossible was going to be about this epistolary relationship between Dennis and Frank, and they weren't going to meet each other for a very long time, if at all, perhaps. And perhaps the whole book could be told as this series of letters between these two characters, because I I really like these kind of uh, epistolary relationships in books. It's what they used to do, you know, in the 18th century. There was whole novels written just back and forth, letter writing between characters and the stories just came out through the letters you know that was a a really big kind of convention of novel writing back in the day and there's loads of them there's absolutely loads of books that were written like this and you don't really get them anymore do you so I thought that'd be interesting to to have a a 21st century epistolary novel and it's not like an email exchange it's proper letters proper pen and paper letters being sent back and forth between like this nine-year-old boy and this kind of middle-aged journalist and of course we haven't seen Frank as a nine-year-old before properly I mean we had this story that I mentioned that was in the that had already been in the podcast where he was nine years old Uh, now in everything I am the start of that Frank is six years old and so he's got this kind of six-year-old's personality now he's a little bit Uh, I mean, he's only three years older, but he's he's slightly more older and wiser, perhaps, than six-year-old Frank. He was just preoccupied with playing with toys and going on, like, funfair rides and and stuff like that. His world was a lot smaller than nine-year-old Frank, who is a lot more open to what's going on in the world and a lot more questioning. It's an interesting age, and it's an interesting age for Frank to be. Uh, There is a sense in which that... Whatever age he is in the books, he's always kind of the same character. He's basically the same character as a nine-year-old as he is as a 43-year-old, you know. There's not that much difference between these two portrayals of Frank. 
partly because as a nine-year-old boy is quite clever for his age and quite savvy for his age and partly because as an adult frank is a little bit like a child trapped in a man's body <laughs> so in that sense <laughs> there's a point at which the two characters meet you know so whatever age he is he always appears to be pretty much the same character which is quite nice in a way so i think what would be useful is if i talk about things that I like in the book and also things that I'm not sure about, things that I'm not quite sure whether they worked or not and it's kind of up to you whether you think they worked or not. So before I get critical with myself I think I'll just mention the bits of the book that I really like. I really like Eileen Angel as a character. Obviously she's not a very nice person. <laughs> Let's point that out but I think she's a brilliant character. I'm really pleased with Eileen Angel. I described Noddy in the past as being the ragbag universe's version of a superhero. And if anything, Eileen Angel is kind of the supervillain of the series. She is a proper supervillain, isn't she? She has this kind of, you know, sexy and charming side to her, but also she has this really horrible, devious, manipulative side to her as well, which comes out as the story goes on. And I'm making it sound like she's a caricature of like a Bond villain or something like that. I think I think she's more than that. I think she's more than an archetypal villain. I think she's a proper character in her own right, which is part of what the theme of the book is about, the ways in which male writers write about women. And Frank at one point describes Eileen Angel as this femme fatale, and he's annoyed with himself for having written her that way because... He's concerned that she's coming off as this kind of female stock character. But actually, I think she's more than that. I think the way in which we see this kind of glamorous side of the character and charming side of the character versus what we see from her later on. She's definitely not one dimensional. Whether it works for you or not is a different question, of course. But for me, I think that character works very nicely. And the other female characters, I brought this up in one of the footnotes in that I was critical of my own writing in the past in that the example that I used was the character of Eliza in the novel 100. And Eliza is a great character. She's kind of like a superhero as well. And that is the problem, is that Eliza doesn't really have any flaws. I mean, she kills the guy at the end. You, you could say that that is a flaw, but she has a good reason to do so. And from the perspective of Eliza's moral code, that is the right thing to do and therefore she needs to do it. Um, so I don't think that character really has any flaws. So at that point in time when I was writing that, it was going back to 2012 now, I don't think I was very good at writing female characters for that reason. I wasn't able to make them properly fully rounded. I wasn't able to properly write really flawed female characters. I didn't feel qualified to do that. And I think I'm qualified to do that now. Uh, <laughs> I've been writing for a very long time and I hold my hand up and say it is one thing that I struggled with. I wasn't able to write proper female characters for whatever reason. I think largely because I've never been female. So to put yourself into somebody else's shoes like that, first of all, it's difficult. But secondly, there's the sense that, well, should I be doing this anyway? Should I be putting myself into this female character's shoes when it's rather fraudulent in a way coming from a male perspective? 
these are thoughts that I've had in the past. These aren't thoughts that I've got now, by the way. I think it's perfectly legitimate. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. And it's an important thing for male writers to do is to write proper three-dimensional female characters. It's a very important skill that you need to develop. If you haven't got that skill as a writer, you need to develop it and you need to work on that. Getting on my high horse now because I feel like I've done this. I feel like I've got a... It was a hurdle to get over and it was... It wasn't easy to get my head around how to properly approach writing female characters. But I feel that I've done it now and I've got some some great characters in this book. Obviously, I've got Eileen Angel, Frank's mum, who is a is a deeply flawed character, of course, and she's a returning one as well. She's not in this as much as she was in Everything I Am, I think, but she does a couple, there's a couple of good little stories about Frank's mum, like the, when she takes him to school and turns out it's nine o'clock in the evening rather than nine o'clock in the morning and she's, she's completely drunk and they walk home because she realises that she hasn't slept off the alcohol in her system you see what i mean she's a flawed character but she's kind of doing her best isn't she she's kind of trying to get through life even though she has this really out of control drinking habit which never really gets resolved i do hope that nobody thinks i'm kind of poking fun at alcoholism by the way it could come across that way with what has been portrayed perhaps as this kind of funny story about frank's mum taking him to school at the completely the wrong time of day because she was drunk but I'm not really playing it for laughs. I'm playing it as, look what this person's childhood is like with these pretty much an absent father and a mother who's barely able to function. This is what this person's childhood is like. And there is something funny about it, but obviously it's more tragic comic, just like life, because funny things happen in life all the time, especially when you don't want them to. And when you're not expecting funny things to happen, that's when funny things happen. Funny things happen all the time in life. And that's why it's really important to have lots of jokes in serious books. Now, I'm not saying this is a serious book by any means, but there are serious bits in it. So anyway, like I'm saying, I'm happy with the female characters that are in the book. I think Vanessa is a great character. Jenna obviously is. I was happy to bring Jenna back. She was the kind of main focus of the second Ragbag book, Getting Away With It. And it was a lot of fun bringing that character back because even though that character has had her time, I guess, she's had her story told from start to finish. It's fun just to kind of bring her back and you don't really learn anything new about Jenna as a character from the bits that she is in Endless Impossible. She basically just is the same character and we don't really learn anything new about her. But that's fine. It's the same with the other returning characters as well, uh, particularly Frank Burton Sr., who very much had his story told in the first book in uh, Everything I Am. And now he's actually in Endless Impossible quite a lot because I really enjoy writing that character as well. And it's just a lot of fun to put him in whatever situation he's in. He always appears to be kind of slightly out of his depth <laughs> and he he never really knows what he's doing, you know. But then he has this side to him where he just really hits the nail on the head and suddenly he's the smartest guy in the room. Case in point being the whole theme of this book, which is the ways in which male writers write about women. This subject begins with Frank Senior and Claude bickering over the dinner table and Claude is the one who says, Whoa! I'll tell you something, Frank. I'll tell you something. <laughs> That's my. This is my best line in the book, by the way. This, uh, not what he says next, just that first bit. I'll tell you one.
one thing, Frank. That was it. That was it. I'll tell you one thing, Frank. <laughs> Women are very strange creatures. And Frank Senior's response to that absolutely knocks it out of the park. It's like, what are you talking about, mate? You're talking about 50% of the population here. How are they mysterious creatures? He's absolutely right. And he's, he's right about the things that he says later. He cottons on to Eileen Angel's tricks straight away. He figures out from day one that she's this manipulative character who is out to get something. We're not sure what yet. And then later on, Frank has a conversation with Frank Senior. And once again, he hits it on the head and he turns out to be right in the end. It's all about money. What she wants is money. It's all about money. It might not look like she is after your money, but she is. And he's absolutely right. This is the only thing that is motivating Eileen Angel is she just wants to get rich off the back of exploiting these vulnerable guys. So that's what I like about that particular character. And it's nice to have Frank Burton Sr. back as well because, like I say, he's a fun character. I don't think I can use him again for anything, which is a shame. I think uh, Frank's mum and dad have had their time now. I don't think I can bring them back again for any reason. So this book is kind of like a greatest hits album, really. It's got these returning characters who are coming to take a last little bow, I guess. I think that scene that I mentioned between Frank Senior and Uncle Claude is one of my favourite scenes, actually. Believe it or not, it's the first time that Frank Senior and Claude have been seen together in the same room. Now, obviously, they've met before because they're brothers and they were brought up together. But this is their first scene together. First and, and only scene, I believe, because I don't think I'm going to do another scene with the two of them together. So, and it's fun seeing the way that they relate to each other. I wasn't sure how to approach it. It just kind of came out naturally that the two guys would just be arguing the whole time. They're just at each other's throats the whole time. And there's a lot of, kind of resentment between the two of them, with Claude being like this older brother who also happens to be Frank Senior's boss at work. He considers himself to be more intelligent and wiser than his younger brother. And any opportunity to knock that back in his face, Frank Senior will take it. And that's what's good about this little exchange that is also a very important exchange in terms of narrative, where Claude says women are mysterious creatures and... Frank Senior just scoffs in his face at the totally ridiculous thing that you, he just said. And that's a nice little exchange as well, just because people say these sort of things all the time. You used to hear it a lot more often, I guess, in the time in which this was set, which was, uh, I guess, end of the 80s or start of the 90s, I can't remember. That sort of late 20th century period in our history. You would hear men saying this all the time, that women are mysterious creatures. Oh, I can't figure them out. What's going on with all these women? It's like men are from Mars and women are from Venus. You used to hear it all the time. And as I say, Frank Senior is completely right. They're only mysterious in Claude's head. That is the point. And in the heads of any other man who says women are mysterious creatures. And it's important for the narrative, of course, because the story is about a woman who is able to manipulate these vulnerable men on the basis of her being this deeply mysterious character and she's tapping in very much to this kind of prejudicial assumption that men like Claude have got and she's exploiting that for all it's worth 
Now, another one of my favourite scenes is where nine-year-old Frank is interrogating Vanessa in the bookshop and he manages to get the full details of what is going on in this bookshop, which is this like mysterious front for Vanessa's real business, which is changing people's identities, of course. And I feel like I've stolen this from Breaking Bad. I, I don't think I have, but I feel like I have. I feel like, you know, the, the vacuum cleaner shop in um, Breaking Bad, which is a front for exactly the same business that Vanessa has. So they go to this vacuum cleaner salesman and they pay him loads of money and he gives them this whole new identity and off they go. I don't think it's fair to say that I've stolen it. These things do happen in real life. As far as I know, there are places that you can go to kind of fraudulently get your identity changed. And they may well be doing it from secondhand bookshops. Who am I to say? As a side note, by the way, there are a lot of these shops around. There seem to be a lot of these shops around. Which is very, very curious. There's a shop that is, I won't give it away, but there's there's a shop that I walked past in this little village. I won't say what the village is because I'm probably going to be incriminating somebody here. But this little, tiny little village... Middle of nowhere, pretty much. There's this shop that's kind of sandwiched in between like a little corner grocery shop and like a little cafe or something. In between them, there was this tiny little, I think it was just called the rug shop, <laughs> and it was closed. I looked through the window at the stock that they had on display. It's a tiny little room. It literally only had five rugs uh, <laughs> just kind of hanging up from these little bars. And they weren't like expensive looking rugs. They were just like the sort of thing you would pay about 30 quid for maximum. They weren't like antiques or something. So the entire stock of the shop was like £150, <laughs> which is way less. Even if they sold all of those rugs, they still wouldn't be able to pay their bills and their business rates and their electricity. All, all these different overhead costs of running this rug shop. They would have to sell their entire stock every day in order to turn a profit. What is going on? I was thinking either this is somebody's weird hobby or it's a front for something. <laughs> what it's a front for, I don't know. It's very mysterious. As you see a lot of these things around. A lot of these little second-hand bookshops or, you know, how do second-hand bookshops make any money? They don't, I'm sure. It can't be done. The cost of running like a, a bricks-and-mortar business you have to turn over so much, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Second-hand bookshops aren't making hundreds of pounds every day, are they? They're not. I don't know how they. I don't know how they manage it, unless either it, you know, in Vanessa's case, it's a front for some kind of dodgy dealings, or it's just somebody's hobby that they can't let go. But that's a side note. Uh, obviously, uh, nothing to do with the book. There, just me, my insane ramblings for you. My other favourite part is Dennis's joke. Of course, it's a good joke, that isn't it? <laughs> slightly arrogant of me because a couple of times I described it as the best joke ever written and because I attributed it to Dennis that I'm allowed to say that now obviously there is no Dennis Gleason, and I wrote the joke <laughs> so me describing it as the best joke ever written it's rather arrogant isn't it but that being said I think it is a very good joke so where am I going with this I don't know now let's talk about fictional Frank and the way that he comes across as an adult in Endless Impossible. And you see a different side to fictional Frank in this book in particular, I think. 
in terms of what we see of his relationship with Heidi. This is Heidi's first time in the Ragbag novels. She's appeared in stories in the podcast years back now. And the one in particular that she's in is kind of a two-part episode called The Envy Edition, which you can check out. It's a, a great story, that one. That story specifically is about the breakdown of Frank and Heidi's relationship, which is alluded to in this book, but you get the full lowdown on what happened in that story. It's called The Envy Edition. And in that story, you do see that really insecure, controlling side of Frank. But it's toned down a bit there, I suppose. In Endless Impossible, he really is quite nasty. And we haven't seen that side to this character before. It has been alluded to previously. Frank has described himself as not a good person to be in a relationship with. But he hasn't elaborated too much. And now we've seen it firsthand, the way that he is obsessive and paranoid. And I think we can all agree he's just not a good person when he is in this state. That is not to say that he's not a good person generally. But being in this relationship, I think, brings out these sort of deep insecurities and it makes him into this bad guy. And it's a difficult thing to uh, write about in terms of having a character who the reader is supposed to be generally sympathetic to. And Frank does do some crazy stuff. But generally speaking, we're with him, aren't we? We're supposed to be... He's the central character of this series. And he is supposed to be the guy that we identify with as an audience. Even when he's doing something rather silly, which he often does. But when he's behaving like this... You know, I think as an audience, we have to take a step back. Perhaps there's something quite uncomfortable about that. But this is life, I suppose. I mean, this is the way that people are. People behave this way in relationships. Lots of people do. And I'm not saying it's right. It definitely isn't. And I would just recommend as a bit of life advice, if you're reading this story and listening to this story and you recognise something of yourself in Frank's behaviour in that relationship with Heidi... Perhaps it's time to have a look at that, okay? Have a word with yourself, mate. Uh, <laughs> perhaps you recognise that behaviour in your partner, perhaps. And what can you do about that? Uh, as I have uh, said many times, fictional Frank is not the same as real Frank. I've never behaved like that myself. I have been on the receiving end of that behaviour. Not recently, but years ago, I was on the receiving end of that kind of behaviour in a relationship. So I think that's what makes me qualified to write about it in a fictional setting because I've kind of been there and I've been on the receiving end of that behaviour. But I think it's important to write about these things and it's I think it's important to have a central character in this series who just isn't perfect. I mean, he's not perfect by a long way for lots of reasons. Some people might read this and be actually quite sympathetic towards Frank in that situation in terms of looking at the childhood that he's had and the upbringing that he's had, very unstable childhood in which he was kind of left to his own devices for most of the time. And perhaps you could say it's inevitable that as an adult and trying to negotiate adult relationships, he's not very good at it. But, you know, other people are going to read that and perhaps just find it very difficult to get past that behaviour and might not enjoy continuing 
to uh, read about the crazy adventures of this character who behaves in this horrible way to his girlfriend. I don't particularly know how people are going to respond to these sections in which Frank is doing the whole kind of paranoid routine. It's not a big part of the story. I mean, you could take that out and the story would be the same. It doesn't actually affect the plot of the novel. But I think it's important to have it in there. It's important to have that in this particular story because this is what the story is about, really. It's about Frank's relationship with women, about him and the women in his life. Friendships, girlfriends, his mother, and these kind of fantasy figures like Eileen Angel and the kind of thoughts and feelings he has towards all of these different people. So yeah, different side to fictional Frank that we've seen here. And I actually try to do that in each of the books. I try to kind of reveal something new each time about this character. And next time I think we're going to go a little bit darker still, actually. And the fifth book is going to be about going to be set during the kind of lowest time in his life that he's alluded to at the end of Endless Impossible after he's broken up with Heidi and he's very depressed and he's very lonely he he hasn't got people in his life anymore he's lost his best friend he's lost the love of his life he's lost his family and he's got no one and this is going to be the setting for the uh, the fifth ragbag novel sounds like a barrel of laughs doesn't it there will be jokes there will be jokes so don't worry about that Uh, Returning to the subject of mental health, one question that some of you may be asking, probably not everybody, but some people may well be asking this question, and it's an interesting one, is Dennis bipolar? This only occurred to me after I'd written the book, uh, after I'd completely finished with the character, looking back on the story that I created this character. It seems obvious now he has periods of depression. He also has periods of what would appear to be mania. When Frank first meets him in person, he's completely just on the go all of the time. Won't stop talking, won't stop moving, won't stop walking around. He's chain smoking. He's having all of these ideas. He's making really kind of impulsive and reckless decisions about his life. Like, oh, I'll move to Manchester. I'm going to I'm going to move. I'm just going to move to Manchester so I can work on this story. And then, oh, I'm going to go and join Miss Angel in a cult in Devon. And then he disappears and you don't see him again, you know. Is that mania or is that just his personality? At the time of writing, I thought that that's just what Dennis is like. He's a very impulsive guy and he does make reckless decisions because he gets carried away and he doesn't really think about his own personal safety that much he's more about chasing this story because he's quite obsessive like that and then sort of later on when we start analyzing this and kind of trying to figure out why Dennis disappeared and where he's gone and what sort of person he is I believe it's Jenna who suggests that actually what we're looking at here is a midlife crisis because he has all of this history of reckless behavior previously in that he's like his wife suggests that he spent all of their life savings so that he can go and write this book about rainbow hunters and he walks out on their children all this sort of stuff that kind of perhaps point towards some kind of crisis i mean what they used to call midlife crisis i don't think people really use that term anymore do they in the the actual mental health world i think that's a very old-fashioned 
way of putting it. They would use the term like mental health crisis, which can happen at any time of your life. It doesn't have to happen when you're in middle age. Middle age is a very imprecise measurement as well, isn't it? What exactly is middle age anyway? But thinking about it, and I actually know quite a lot about bipolar disorder, and I know people who have got bipolar disorder. So it's uh, quite close to me as a person. And like I say, I literally didn't occur to me at all while I was writing this character. But looking back on it, it actually seems obvious. And I can actually go back and diagnose the guy. I can diagnose my own character as having bipolar disorder. But that actually was not my intention. That's just the way that the character came out. And the thing is about writing fiction, I don't know about anybody else who, if anyone's listening to this, who writes fiction themselves, maybe you've experienced this as well. But when you create a character, you have this starting point where you've got a rough idea of who this person is. And at some point, the character just takes over and they become this person who's slightly out of your own control. And it feels like it's the character who's dictating the story rather than you dictating the story. (laughs) It sounds a little bit out there and a little bit hippie-ish, a bit of a hippie-ish thing to say. (laughs) The character does not exist. You've invented the character, Frank. What the hell are you going on about? (laughs) Of course it's you telling the story. I don't know how else to describe it, that's all. The best way that I can describe it is that the character takes on a life of their own. I think, like I say, anyone who writes fiction who might be listening to this, I think you can probably relate to that at some level. You have this starting point for the character. You start writing, and if it's a good character, particularly if it's a good character, and I think Dennis Gleeson is a great character. It's very interesting, and it's very funny. And because he's quite reckless, you don't know what he's going to do next, really. (laughs) Even I don't know what he's going to do next. This is what I mean. He's taken over now. It's almost like the story is being dictated by the characters rather than being dictated by myself. And I think that's great. When you get into that place where a character is literally making their own decisions, or at least it feels like the character is making their own decisions and it's beyond your your control as the author of the thing. That is a great place to be because that's when the best stuff comes out, I think. And I get this with fictional Frank as well. I just don't really know what Frank is going to say or do next, really. And sometimes I just let him, <laughs> I just let him say it. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not insane. I'm not. This makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to other people as well. (laughs) So let's talk about the stuff that didn't quite work or perhaps may not have worked in the way that I intended it. I've done things slightly differently this time in that I've inserted a lot of my own kind of critical opinions about various bits of culture. Like I make some highly critical remarks about Roald Dahl at one point. I do this kind of critical analysis of the Eel song, Susan's House. And I talk about Nick Cave and I'm quite critical of him as well. And frankly, it's just me saying my opinions, which I've never done before in a book. And I'm not entirely sure it's a good idea, but it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the appropriate way of addressing the theme of the book and highlighting these things from that period in history. Roald Dahl's children's books, pop songs with dodgy misogynistic lyrics. And the point I was making about Nick Cave songs was that 
as much as I love Nick Cave's work, I do get the feeling that he has got this same opinion about women that Uncle Claude has got, which is women are mysterious creatures and I don't understand them. And I may be completely wrong about that. It's just the impression I get from being intimately familiar with those songs. But the question is, is this a good thing? Should I be doing this? Should I be inserting all of these little bits of cultural commentary into this novel that I've written? I don't know whether it's a good idea or not. You be the judge, I guess. It was nice and cathartic to get these things off my chest, but that doesn't necessarily make it good work. I'm always suspicious if I've enjoyed writing something a little bit too much. Uh, and I feel, oh, is this just me ranting and getting things off my chest? Uh, because if that is the case, is it actually any good? Just because it feels good to write, it doesn't mean that it's good work. Now, I think I was heavily influenced, actually, by a writer called Jarrett Kobeck, who, if you haven't heard of Jarrett Kobeck before, I highly recommend that you check out his work. In particular, there's a novel called I Hate the Internet. And the other one that was a huge influence on me, I think, is called Only Americans Burn in Hell. Is it called Only Americans Burn in Hell? I'm sure it is. Yes, I'm sure that's the title of it. (laughs) But as you may have gathered just from the titles, I mean, you write a book called I Hate the Internet. You're obviously quite opinionated as a writer, if that's the title that you've given your book. And it sounds like a non-fiction book, but it's a proper novel. And it's just brilliant. He's really, really good at getting to the heart of the matter. And those two books that I mentioned in particular are just these great works of satire. It's not just cultural commentary, it's proper satire, which is a difficult thing to do. And Jarrett Kopeck does it really well. Now, this book that I've written is not a satirical book, But there is some influence, I think, from me having recently read these Jarrett Kobeck books in which the author very much does this thing of inserting his own opinions about culture right the way through these books. And he'll pause the narrative whenever he feels like it just to have a little rant about racism in Hollywood or 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 whatever is on his mind at that moment in time. So these are the sections of the book that have a kind of question mark over them. I toyed around with the idea of just taking them out. But then I thought, no, let's leave it in. Let's leave it in. It doesn't disrupt the narrative too much. And if people don't like those sections, they're only quite short. If they disagree with my opinions, that's fine. They can disagree with my opinions if they like. It's not the end of the world. So I left those sections in, for better or worse. Now, the one thing that I will say about endless impossible is that it's a proper mystery story which is something that i haven't done before there's everything i am is kind of a mystery story in that it's about frank burton senior's disappearance and this person has gone missing what happened to them now the thing is i wouldn't describe it as being like a proper mystery story in the way that endless impossible is because it's the case with all of these missing person stories you kind of know what is going to happen at the end. The person is going to reappear and they're going to explain where it was that they went. So you know that that is going to happen. You just don't know their reason for disappearing. And so that is kind of the reveal that you get at the end of those stories. Which is not like the the big kind of massive reveal that you get at the end of a story like Endless Impossible. 
So Endless Impossible is kind of like this double mystery, I suppose. The first mystery being, who is this Eileen Angel? What does she want? Why is she pretending to be an alien? Why do people believe her? And what does she want from these followers of hers? And there's this, the second layer to the mystery, which is Dennis has disappeared. Where's Dennis gone? Has he joined this cult? And if he has joined this cult, has he been brainwashed? So all of these questions, and most of these questions don't get answered right up until the, the very end of the book, where there's this big reveal where you find out the full extent and the full nature of Miss Angel's plan. All of this other stuff that she put into place was just a distraction. And Frank Burton Sr. was right, it was all about money. She just wanted the money, and that was all she wanted. And that is what she got. And I'm pleased with the way that this has gone because I would like to think this big reveal at the end is quite unexpected. If you're reading it, it's not what you were expecting to happen necessarily. And again, when Dennis shows up at the end and explains where it was that he went, that in itself isn't necessarily what you were expecting Dennis to do. So in that sense, I achieved what I wanted to achieve, which is the only thing that you have to do properly with a mystery story is have a surprise at the end if it's a if it's a good surprise if it's a bad surprise you know that's that's up to the audience but I feel like I've pulled the rug out from under people quite nicely with this ending and I actually did quite a bit of research about cults before I started writing when I say I did quite a bit of research mostly what I did was listen to this podcast called let's talk about sects it's a, a podcast about cults. It's presented by Sarah Steele, who's great. I really recommend this podcast. It's a documentary series kind of focusing on a different cult in each episode. Sometimes there's a lot to say about a particular cult, so it's like a two-parter or a three-parter. But there's this whole series of them, different stories about different cults, and it's all told from the perspective of the survivors. And the great thing about that is that all these people who have former cult members who are telling their stories, they're treated with a huge amount of respect and just allowed to tell their stories from their point of view. They're not being judged in any way. No one is implying that, oh, they knew what they were letting themselves in for or they must have been really gullible to fall for this thing. No one is saying anything like that. What this podcast series is doing is listening to these people's stories without any judgment whatsoever and it's really interesting to see like this pattern that keeps on coming up time and time again all these stories from all different parts of the world they all seem to follow the same pattern not exactly the same but similar very very similar each time there's a charismatic leader who hooks people in by promising them various different things and once they're in they're subjected to hugely controlling behaviour, extreme forms of manipulation and threats of being shamed and cast aside and rejected by the organisation. And I think what I took away from that personally and what I thought was very important in terms of the Endless Impossible story was that I had to tell this story from the perspective of the victim of this crime. And in this case, it's Tim, Tim Steele who comes in at the end and tells his story about being part of Eileen Angel's organisation. And I guess the difference between Tim Steele and the cult survivors who 
have been part of this documentary series, Let's Talk About Sex, is that Tim doesn't consider himself to have been part of a cult, which also seems to be quite a common thing, actually, this denial that a cult is actually a cult, when everybody can see that it is, but the people on the inside don't consider it to be anything like that. And also Tim is, of course, still convinced that Eileen Angel is from outer space. So even though she's gone and even though the cult has disbanded, he's kind of still part of it. You know, so what we're seeing with Tim's story is that we've seen Eileen Angel, we've seen how charming she is, how intelligent she is. And I guess we can understand why people would be swayed, not necessarily to believe that she's an alien, but perhaps to want to follow her and want to be part of her organisation. And then we see Tim, who is very much the, the victim of these crimes. And it's important, again, to tell Tim's story without being judgmental about him. Tim, as a character, is an intelligent person, and that is part of Miss Angel's recruitment strategy, that she was looking for an intelligent group of people who would be able to carry out this work on her behalf. And it is true, this is what happens in real life. It's people who join cults aren't just gullible idiots. They're intelligent people who have made this choice whatever their reasons happen to be, it could be that they were just looking for something, some kind of fulfilment, and someone came along at that time in their lives and took advantage of that. That doesn't make them foolish. It makes them vulnerable, perhaps, but I don't think it's anyone's place to judge those people. Anyone who joins a cult has made a mistake, for sure, but should we be condemning them or should we be condemning the people who have lured them in? So I was pleased with that. I was pleased the way that, that Tim's story came out. And like I say, it's important that I did it in this non-judgmental way. But I don't know, maybe someone who has actually been through this kind of experience might read this book and have a completely different view and think I've completely misrepresented that experience. In my defence, it is a complete work of fiction. And it's just a story that was taken from my imagination based on research that I had done into similar stories but that being said it's not supposed to be real it's a work of fiction and one final thing i will say on a similar subject just before i wrap up is that what i'm doing with the ragbag series only occurred to me recently that i'm doing this it's the opposite of meta somebody asked me this question i was being interviewed about my writing and I was describing the Ragbag series to the interviewer who hadn't read the books. So <laughs> I had to kind of give him this kind of potted version of what the Ragbag books are all about. And I was saying that the main character is called Frank Burton. Um, he's a fictionalized version of me. So the interviewer said, oh, so it's kind of like a meta thing, is it? And I said, no, it's not a meta thing. It's the opposite of meta. And just having said that, I thought, yeah, that's a good way of describing it. It's the opposite of meta. It's probably useful to define what meta is at this point because different people have got different ideas about what that word means. But from my point of view, meta fiction is a work of fiction that draws the audience's attention to the fact that it is fiction and plays around with the dynamics of fiction writing. So you would start the story by saying, this is a story, welcome to this story. Here are some fictional characters. <laughs> Or as they did in a recent um, Terry Pratchett adaptation. Now, Terry Pratchett, I think, was very good at doing metafiction. In the Discworld books, he would, you know, he would stop halfway through a story and he would talk about his process 
And he said, I've got this idea for this character. <laughs> I don't know whether it works or not, but I'm going to try it out. <laughs> you know, so it would break the fourth wall like that. And there was a recent adaptation of a Terry Pratchett children's book. I imagine he'll be turning his grave over this line <laughs> because it, it was so cheesy. And the narrator introduced the film by saying, now this is what we call a framing device. I don't think Pratchett would be, would be pleased with that. I think that's... <laughs> it is, but that is meta. That is what meta is. And the problem with it is that there's nothing wrong with it as such. It's a fun little thing to play around with i suppose but the problem is it's absolutely everywhere meta is absolutely everywhere and you can't escape from it it's in particularly in tv and film it's just completely ubiquitous now you'll watch a superhero movie and the character will say to another character something like what do you think this is man a superhero movie or something <laughs> you know and it's the, or a cop show what do you think this is a police procedural drama or something uh you know <laughs> anything any genre you care to make romantic comedy what do you think this is a rom-com huh huh <laughs> constantly drawing the audience's attention to the artificiality of the construct that they are watching I guess a lot of the time it's kind of this safeguard against parody. So you can't parody this thing because we are parodying ourselves. So it's like a defense mechanism almost. You know, you can't make fun of this thing. The audience can't make fun of this thing because we are making fun of this thing. That's all well and good. But because everybody is doing it, who is doing fiction straight anymore? You know, I know there are lots of people who are doing fiction straight. I, I am one of them. And it may not appear that I'm doing straight fiction but it's very very strict the ragbag universe has this very very strict rule that i never draw your attention to the fact that this is an artificial construct i'm doing the absolute opposite of that i'm trying my very very best to make it appear as though this is all real and i have to point out as a disclaimer that this is a work of fiction because people have mistaken it for non-fiction because of the way that i presented it <laughs> which is flattering but it's not what I want I, I want people to know that it's fiction but when they're immersed within the story it's important that I present it as though it is a real thing that is happening it's a real account of something that happened in real life and that's one of the things that I think I did pretty well at with the Frank and Claude are following you sitcom it, even though it's a situation comedy it's done in this documentary style so it is basically these personal recordings that Frank has made of his and Claude's conversations. I did my very best to make them sound like real conversations. And in terms of sound design, in terms of the way that it's presented, even when kind of wild and crazy things happen, I try to do it all in, in this kind of realist fashion. And it's the same in the books. It's the same in the books. There are some pretty wild things that happen in the Ragbag universe, aren't there? I mean, Brollywood was, was a very silly story. And yet... I presented it as though it was a perfectly normal thing for me to have been doing. And it's the same with this <laughs> Eileen Angel story. Eileen Angel is this completely unbelievable person, this completely unbelievable character. How could anyone like this really exist in the real world? But that's not my concern. What My concern is just to make you believe that she's real. Appropriately enough, that's what Eileen Angel is trying to do as well. She's trying to convince you that she's an alien. And she puts her case forward and people start to believe that she's an alien. So interesting that, isn't it? Interesting. Anti-meta. That's a good little term. I just thought of that. Anti-meta. Hi, I'm an anti-meta writer. How are you? 
<laughs> I think I'll write a fancy article on my website about this, uh, go into some more detail about the whole anti-meta thing, because I think that's quite interesting. I've been writing on my website. If you want to just have a look, I'll just give you a little plug for my website before we finish, frankburton.co.uk. There's a lot of stuff there about me reflecting on my work and me reflecting on my writing, as I have been doing on this podcast for the last hour. <laughs> just me reflecting on my writing. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, there's uh, there's quite a bit of writing on my website where I, me writing about writing in a kind of slightly self-indulgent way. But there's some interesting stuff. So if that's of interest, then go for it. I assume if you've listened this far into this podcast, then it is of interest. You should go and check it out immediately. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to wrap up and I've actually finished. I've done the whole thing. I've done the whole series. I've done all the footnotes recordings and now I've done Ragbag's Fourth Wall and it's all done. My God. Oh, we got there. We finally got there. <laughs> it was touch and go for a while, but we got there. Thank you very much. I will see you soon. No chaperone can get our number The world's in slumber Let's misbehave There's something wild about you, child That's so contagious Let's be outrageous Let's misbehave When Adam won Eve's hand He wouldn't stand for teasing He didn't care about those apples out of season They say the spring means just one thing to Lovebirds, we're not above birds. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave.